Hey, creep. I want to tell you a tale, if you're ready to hear it. It may not be pleasant. It may not end the way you want it to. But this story is gripping and as fascinating as it is shockingly horrifying. Are you ready? My name's Cole, and you're listening to Tales. New Year's is a time for change, or at least we think it is. It's the end of a calendar year and the start of a new age. A new world, a new me, and a new you, right, creep? New Year's Day 2008, as some of you creeps, and perhaps myself as well, were nursing hangovers and already regretting our decisions to start the year in discomfort. Meredith Hope Emerson was leaving her house in Buffer, Georgia, to start the year off right, being active and hiking along the Appalachian Trail. But, despite her wise decisions to start the year off right, and all of her hopes and dreams and ambitions for the coming year, Meredith Emerson would never finish that hike and would never return home. Meredith's New Year's journey started in northern Georgia, in the Byron Herbert Reese parking lot where she parked at the foot of Blood Mountain. And it was a good thing that both Meredith and her trusty companion, her dog Ella, were both well-weathered and experienced hikers because Blood Mountain has the highest peak in the Georgian stretch of the Appalachian mountain range. Not exactly an easy Sunday stroll you or I would take to relax and refresh. A fellow hiker out to test his resolve upon the heavily wooded hills of Blood Mountain named Seth Blankenship spotted Meredith, but it was no longer just her and her dog Ella. She was also being accompanied by an older man. Meredith carried her dog's leather leash, and the man, well, the older man curiously held a police baton. This scene, as I imagine it in my head, is bizarre and uncomfortable, and I can't truthfully say why Seth didn't say anything. Perhaps it was simply that he just decided to mind his own business in that moment, and if that was the case then that was a decision which would come back to haunt Seth. As morning turned to afternoon, Bill Clawson, another hiker who had been making his way up the mountain behind Meredith and the older man by some distance, arrived at a disturbed section of the trail. Bill found himself looking at a section of the trail which was particularly torn up. The worn trail, which usually showed the wear and tear of hiking, showed signs of a struggle, there was a water bottle on the ground, along with other items scattered about, including sunglasses, a woman's hair clip, and a police baton, like the one Seth had seen the older man earlier carrying, and Meredith's leather dog leash. It wasn't until the next day, January 2nd, 2008, when Meredith didn't return home, that her family and friends, well, her loved ones, knew something was wrong. The first person aware of Meredith's disappearance was her roommate, who quickly called her boyfriend, Stephen Sagars. All he knew in that moment, like Meredith's roommate, was that Meredith had gone hiking and had not returned. Stephen quickly grabbed his keys and rushed out of his house, 
feeling anxious to hopefully find Meredith, to know she was all right. His thoughts weren't so worried about the actions of another human being, though. What was and is much more likely when someone goes hiking, especially in the winter, are the forces of nature working against the hiker. So as Stephen, Meredith's boyfriend, rushed to Blood Mountain, he was worried not that she had been murdered or kidnapped or assaulted in any way, but that she had been snowed in and been forced to spend the night in the elements. As Steve pulled into the parking lot at the foot of the mountain, Stephen saw Meredith's car exactly where she'd left it. This isn't something I knew you could do, but knowledge is power, and Stephen, much more well-informed of what to do when a hiker is missing, alerted park authorities, who listed Meredith as an overdue hiker. A tentative title for missing. Things were tragically about to get much worse, though, as no one had any idea the evil they were about to be confronted with. Local search and rescue began combing the trail for any sign of the active young woman, while the sheriff's office began pulling her cell phone records hoping to find some activity that indicated she was still alive and well. But as the day came to a close, search and rescue was empty-handed, and there was no activity in the reported period of her disappearance on her cell records. At that point, a helicopter was brought in to attempt to cover more ground, as the risk of death by exposure became more and more likely. But still nothing. And that's when the Georgia Bureau of Investigation was brought onto the case to help locate Meredith. Up until this point, Bill Clawson, the hiker who had found the disturbed section of trail along with Meredith's belongings thrown about, was completely unaware of anyone still missing along the trail. Bill had collected the belongings and taken them to a nearby store. But it wasn't until Bill saw a news report on the night of January 2nd that he found out a hiker was actually missing. Bill instantly knew that the information he had might be valuable to police. At roughly 10.30 p.m. that night, Bill Clawson called the tip line to inform authorities of what it was that he had found. But he also told them of an older man he had noticed as well, that seemed to be impatiently waiting for other hikers to pass by. An old man that had made him uncomfortable, and one who looked uncomfortable himself. Thank goodness for people like Bill Clawson. People who care. Because Bill wasn't just happy calling the tip line. Bill, who was anxious and afraid the information which he had parlayed to authorities on their tip line, wouldn't reach those who were actively involved in the search fast enough. Well, Bill hopped in his vehicle and drove to Blood Mountain, arriving at roughly 3.30 a.m. on the morning of January 3rd, so that he could recount the information he had to authorities on the ground. And Bill wasn't the only witness who had come forward either. Thankfully, unlike so often, the news story that had been run about Meredith's disappearance had been quick enough and concise enough in its messaging to prompt a slew of hikers to come forward, all of them describing an older man hiking with Meredith, as well as the disturbed section of trail and items thrown about. In these situations, authorities can only do so much, and it's thanks to folks who care like Bill Clawson that cases like these are pushed out of those early, clueless, hopeless stages that missing persons investigations often find themselves in. 
Armed with Bill Clausen's tip, authorities began to fully picture what exactly had happened on the trail leading up Blood Mountain. It appeared there was a spot, roughly 40 yards away from where Bill Clausen, who'd been hiking with his family, had found the items. It appeared that Meredith had been bound to a tree after she was initially attacked on the trail. The older man waiting anxiously at the side of the trail, waiting for hikers to leave, police assumed was actually waiting to retrieve the personal belongings which were scattered on the trail. He was trying to erase Meredith from the scene. On January 3rd, later in the morning, the media gathered for a scheduled news conference. After gathering their evidence, after observing the scene and receiving reports of the older man from multiple witnesses, Authorities were now appealing to the public to assist them in finding the man responsible for the disappearance of Meredith, but they were without a name. Luckily, a man by the name of John Tabber was watching the news conference on CNN as he was preparing to go for lunch at work. John felt the man they were looking for was an individual named Gary Hilton. John knew Gary because Gary had done marketing work for the business John owned. Armed with this information, John Tabber called the tip line, like Bill Clausen before him, and let authorities know about Gary. Because John was Gary's employer for a time, and because employees have to fill out paperwork, John was able to pass along Gary Hilton's vehicle type and tag, that vehicle being a Chevy Astro van. At roughly 1.25pm that day, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation was alerted of this tip. After that, they called John back to verify the information and do a follow-up. Once their due diligence had been done, authorities put out a bolo or be on the lookout for Gary. John wasn't the only one who had called the tip line about Gary Hilton. And now that police were not so quiet about their search for the man, calls began to pour in. But most were only those trying but unable to help who felt it important that police knew he was unhinged or unstable. Meanwhile, John Tabber was also receiving calls of his own. At roughly 4.30, John received a pair of calls from Gary Hilton. Gary Hilton wanted money, and he wanted it from John. And Gary instructed John to leave a check for him at his business. Around 6.30, John then received a call, but it was thankfully from GBI calling for a follow-up. That was John's opportunity to express to authorities that Gary Hilton had demanded he leave a check for him at John's business. Authorities rushed to the scene to try and catch Gary in the act of picking the check up, but were too late, as Gary had already received the check. In this story, John isn't a bad guy, but he wasn't a Bill Clausen either. Bill had driven in the dead and still hours of the early morning, going above and beyond the call of civic duty, beyond the expectations of the social contract we all signed by being born to care for one another. I think John Tabber would have done the same, had he known that at the time that he had received the calls from Gary, that Gary still had Meredith, alive and as a hostage. Meredith Emerson was being held hostage in Gary Hilton's Chevy Astro van as he drove her from ATM to ATM trying to access her card. Meanwhile, Meredith, over and over again, gave him the wrong PIN number, hoping he'd be caught, hoping someone would come and rescue her. 
As January 3rd rolled into January 4th, Gary would later confess that he was ready for the chase to be over. Earlier that day, a lawn care technician who had gotten stuck close to where Gary and Meredith had camped for the night had come to ask for help. It was a close call, too close in fact, and Gary could feel the vice of inevitably being caught wrap its binding grip around him. Gary Hilton driving his Chevy Astro van had arrived at a location with Meredith. It was the spot he had decided it would all end. The spot where he would murder Meredith. Gary Hilton removed a terrified Meredith from the van and took her towards a tree where he bound her to the trunk, all the while telling her he was going to take her home. Gary then went back into the van and made some coffee. Perhaps Meredith thought Gary was just going to drive away, leaving her tied to be found. The gig was up after all. Police knew it was him. He wouldn't get away with kidnapping her, but police wouldn't pursue him as actively if she was no longer with him. As he returned, though, Meredith expressed to him that she hadn't expected him to return at all. But, tragically, Gary wasn't going anywhere anytime soon. Gary held in his hand a tire iron, which he began to beat her over the head with brutally. As if that wasn't enough, Gary, seeing her no longer alive, decapitated her and buried the body. Gary then drove his Chevy Astro to a nearby gas station to clean away the blood that was soaked onto the carpet of the vehicle, as well as to dispose of Meredith's belongings. It was there that a man saw Gary and recognized him from the bulletins police had dispersed and put on the news. Police arrived as Gary was still vacuuming out the back of his van and arrested him without a struggle. They had caught him in the act. The dumpster near Gary's van contained all of Meredith's belongings, including a fleece top soaked in Meredith's blood. Charges were swift and immediate, as you can imagine. There wasn't much room for arguing into his guilt. Gary pleaded guilty to the charge of murdering Meredith, and in exchange, Gary wouldn't be sentenced to death. In return, he would also show authorities where Meredith's body lay, so that her family could give her a proper burial, and hopefully some sense of closure. Gary in total was sentenced to life in prison, with the possibility of parole in 30 years. But, since his arrest and incarceration, Gary Hilton has been linked and charged with three additional murders. Meredith wasn't his only victim. Gary Hilton is... Well, Gary Hilton's a serial killer. The murders Gary was charged with include the October 2007 murder of John and Irene Byrant in North Carolina and the December 2007 murder of Nurse Cheryl Dunlap in Florida. There have also been investigations into his possible involvement in the murder of a lady named Judy Smith. I don't personally condone the death penalty, but I know a lot of you creeps will sleep easier knowing that Gary Hilton was charged and sentenced to death for the murder of Cheryl Dunlap. It's just a shame he wasn't found and locked up earlier. When researching cases like this, I often think to myself, how many Gary Hiltons? Are there out there right now? So, creeps, that brings us to the end of our tale. If you enjoyed this episode and want more, please consider becoming a Patreon member 
by visiting patreon.com slash tales by Cole, where we release a Patreon exclusive podcast weekly for Patreon members generous enough to donate $5 or more. If you have some time on your hands, please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. They are so incredibly important in getting these stories out there. And even more importantly, every five-star review gets me one step closer to moving out of my mother's basement. You can also join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching Tales by Cole. This episode was written and narrated by me, Cole Weavers, and sound production and editing by Matt Black. Remember, creeps, take care of one another, stay safe, and don't forget to lock the doors.